ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. Hello everyone, you're listening to Where the Big Boys Play. I'm here with Chad. How are you, Chad? Doing good. What have you been up to since the last time we spoke? Uh, not a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alright, so uh, this is a Clash of the Champions uh, 4 this week. Just before uh, we get started here, I've got one more uh, comment uh, to have a look at. It's our friend uh, Edison Cheapy, uh, who posted this on the um, uh, the Kayfabe Memories board, and he did it as we were uh, recording. He said, uh, I had to jump ahead, and now I'm listening to Great American Bash 88. Uh, he said, that event had its own kick-ass music, and I was disappointed not to hear it in the opening. I'm guessing that that was the previous years. Um, yeah, I did notice that the music has changed, uh, and I basically reused uh, 87's music, so I'm sorry about that. He said he agrees with me about the powers of pain demolition double turn. Um, he said if there wasn't a business reason to do it, uh, I put it down uh, with one of uh, Vince Russo's swerves. I put it down there with one of Vince Russo's swerves, he says. Um, you also know that the Tower of Doom actually debuted months earlier in world class as the Triple Dome of Terror. Do you know about that? I do not. I've not watched um, really from kind of the 85... Gino Hernandez, Chris Adams uh, run in world class. I haven't watched many uh, second half of the decade, 80s uh, world class. So that's kind of interesting that they lifted the concept from them then. He said, regarding the antics of uh, Kevin Sullivan post-match, I remember a minor issue being brought up regarding the fact that this angle was shown on classics on demand in fall, just a bit of time after June of 2007. Um, so I guess there was a, some controversy there. Um, yeah, well, that'd have been right after the Benoit uh, murders, if they showed it at that time. So. Yeah. Well, you can imagine, like some, you know, they're not really checking this footage before they send it out, probably most of the time. Um, he says uh, that he's also he's also re uh, replying to, to Brain Follower, who says there's there's a theme in many NWA matches that they protected the heels in the finish, um, which is something that we've seen. We, we, there's been very few times where the babyface goes over clean. I, to be honest, the only one I can think of is that tag match with, uh, um, is it Luger and Wyndham? Yeah, and I mean, the thing about that is a couple of weeks later, Wyndham turned, so 
you know, they really even botched that just a couple of weeks after uh, it happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, the subject of turning very over faces is uh, something I think we may talk, talk about later on this show. Um, just before we get into the Clash 4 show, um, uh, a bit more uh, uh, stuff on the Turner deal from uh, Meltzer. This is September 26th. He says, the Turner deal is virtually done. But uh, the, pr the thing that's holding it all up is that the Crockett's need to settle a compromise. Um, uh, they basically need to settle their debt with Bill Watts, who they owe about $3 million from the UWF sale. He says that Crockett has also been in talks with uh, Fritz von Erich about something, but basically he doesn't know what, and we don't hear anything more about that. So I don't know what the uh, von Erich talk was there. Um, uh, he also has a pile of ideas to save um, to save the NWA. I don't know if you want to get into this now or should we, whether we should leave it to the end of the show, Chad, because um, it's quite extensive. Um, I'll leave it for the time being. Um, he mentions that Ricky Morton has now left the promotion for, for Japan, um, which makes that chain match with uh, Ivan Koloff seem even stranger because he, he won it. Um, JCP uh, uh, still... Um, so this is October the 3rd. They're still trying to settle their debts with uh, with Watts at that point. Um, they've signed Bam Bam Bigelow as a face, managed by Sir Oliver Humperdinck. And they're trying. They're in the process of trying to sign Ricky Steamboat. And on the October 31st newsletter, the Turner purchase um, will, is basically signed. And it will go through the very next day, on November the 1st, with no immediate changes. Um, Jim Crockett will stay on as the head of the promotion for the next month or so. Um, and there's this guy called, uh, I'm trying to remember his name now, Jim Pickett or something, um, who's a Turner guy who's basically there to oversee things. Um, yeah. Yeah. What's his name? Jim Jim Pickett? Jim. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I, I don't know. Sorry. Uh, hold on a second. I'm, yeah, I'm just having a look. It's. um. Oh, no. They're going to bring in Jim Hurd, uh, is the oh, news. Okay. <laughs> um, currently an executive with Pizza Hut. The, the guy I was thinking of is Jack Petrick, um, uh, who's the acting president. And he's basically a corporate guy. Um, but apparently Hurd has some wrestling background because he was the director of Vince McMahon's senior television tapings at Washington TV, uh, D.C. in the mid-70s, and then director of Sam Muchnick's television show in St. Louis from 1969 through to the early 70s. He then became general manager of KPLR-TV, which is uh, Channel 11 in St. Louis, which was the station that Muchnick's program aired on. Uh, he followed with a stint working in the front office for the St. Louis Blues of the National Hockey League, and then went on to Pizza Hut. Now, this is real news to me, because the, um, the story I always hear about Jim Hurd is that he didn't have a clue about wrestling. He was just a pizza guy. He'd never been involved with it. So I'm really shocked to learn that he had this background working for Vince Senior and uh, the St. Louis promotion there. Did you know about that at all? No, yeah. I, just you reading that off was kind of shocking to me because, yeah, that is sort of the reputation of Hurd is that he, you know, essentially kind of didn't understand the wrestling business and, of course, like the all the kind of wild and outlandish things that he wanted, like Flair wearing an earring and all this stuff. <laughs> but, uh, 
Yeah, you, but, well, he's yeah, that's kind of interesting that at least he should have had a working knowledge with what he'd done previously. Yeah, and you know, St. Louis is known for being a really kind of serious promotion as well, so I'm surprised that, um, you know, this is the man who brought us the Black Scorpion and all that nonsense. Anyway, um, let's uh, let's get on to the show itself. Um, maybe maybe if we've got time later, I'll get into um, Meltzer's uh, ideas to save the promotion, because it, it goes on for about four or five pages, um, so okay. it will be here all yeah. night. Yeah, I mean, one just one quick thing on that is it does at least, um, and you can sort of see it in this show, is one thing that, I mean, in our podcast, we've sort of been kind of scrounging for ideas because in 1988, we haven't had hardly any debuts, uh, in fact, none that I can think of. So the products really kind of felt stagnant in a lot of ways with yeah. the same kind of guys. I mean, you've had a little elevation with... Luger and Sting, but uh, but it's guys that were on the scene previous to 1988. Uh, so it does at least seem nice that uh, that you are kind of getting some new talent coming in, and then uh, you also are seeing more kind of WCW sort of starting to creep in, which is interesting too. Yeah, and I mean throughout this show, there's a little WCW logo in the top left-hand corner, isn't there? Um, yeah. And it's the logo basically from the 90s that we all know. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is, you can definitely see that uh, both in the kind of production values and in the general presentation here, that this is morphing into um, a WCW type product now. There's a lot more promos on Clash 4, isn't there? Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, which, which is actually quite welcome. It's something that I've really missed, uh, you know, for quite a, quite a number of for many many shows now, we we don't have many promos and things, so it's good that we um, that we managed to to have this. Now now this mat this card uh, took place on December the seventh, uh, nineteen eighty eight, um, and is from the UTC Arena in Ch Chattanooga, Tennessee. Eight thousand people were there, and it drew a four point five on TBS. Um, which is still pretty good, about uh, t 2 million homes, um, and it peaked um, It peaked at around 3 million later in the evening. Um, if we don't get any, it, I don't know if it outgrew the Braves match that evening or not. <laughs> he doesn't mention it. So, yeah. um, oh, it's winter, so I can assure you the Braves were not playing. Um, uh, they wouldn't have been playing any time past September when the playoffs started. <laughs> well, I, I, baseball's a summer game, is it? Yeah, yeah. Base the baseball season, uh, regular seasons from April to September, and then the uh, the playoffs are in October. You know, uh, since un until I did this podcast, I never knew how little I actually know about American sports. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think it's the same way about me with soccer. I mean, you know, kind of any. Anything beyond the World Cup, and I'm pretty lost. So, yeah. Well, you know, I, I was actually in that. I was doing Route 66 during the time when the World Cup was on. Um, it was being hosted in uh, um, uh, South Africa. South, South Africa, and literally, I would like the people I was speaking to just didn't have a clue. You know, some of them didn't even know that World Cup was soccer. They just didn't yeah. like. Um, so that that's kind of surprising that. Um, you know, a game that is so over in the rest of the world is just 
you know, people generally don't care in uh, in the states. But I'm kind of all right with that. You know, kind of maybe the way things should be. Um, anyway, as we start out here, we get a pretty grandiose opening. Um, we we get a shot of uh, Lookout Mountain, which is uh, I guess in Tennessee. And it's yeah, it's um, it's kind of this. It, yeah, it's a pretty high elevated area of the Appalachian Mountains. Well, it's really pretty. Uh, I enjoy going up there. Chattanooga is a really cool town uh, to go to for like a weekend getaway. How long did it take you to get there? From uh... Uh, it's actually about two hours too, um, and it's uh, it's it's a nice kind of like little weekend place you can go to. Uh, kind of a mid-sized town. Well, as this starts out, we get from this this voiceover says from the top of Look Lookout Mountain, you can see. Um, the uh, relics of the past. Now, you can see relics of past confrontations. Uh, those involving men of honor, men of strength, men of pride. The question is not one of right or wrong, but of choice. When old friends turn violent behavior, um, turn to violent behavior, and then we see footage of uh, the road warriors beating up dusty roads, and I'm legitimately shocked by that um, and other friends stand by someone must uh, say an eye for an eye and then we see Dusty getting a spike in the eye from a road warrior animal when most extends season greetings in the NWA it becomes seasons beatings <laughs> which is the tagline for this show From the top of Lookout Mountain, you can see relics of past confrontations. Those involving men of honor, men of strength, men of pride. The question is not one of right or wrong, but one of choice. When old friends turn to violent behavior and other friends stand by, someone must say an eye for an eye. During a time when most extend season's greetings, in the NWA it's become season's beatings. Oh my God! Uh, what were you thinking when that opening start? Were you were you pumped? I, I kind of admit I liked it. <laughs> I, I did. Um, so uh, the Row Warriors have turned heel. Um, did, you, did you know about this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I knew about this uh, based on Starcade, and uh, I'd, I'd seen this show before, so I knew they kind of. Really, in some ways, I think this is kind of Dusty's last hurrah in Crockett. Um, so I always thought it did look gruesome, though, the angle where they're drilling the spike into Dusty's eye. I always thought that looked pretty good. So, so what is the reason for turning the Road Warriors heel? I mean, they were still I, over, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know kind of what the basis was for that. Just may, maybe... Uh, I mean, obviously, Dusty had really went through going against everybody that he possibly could. Uh, so maybe just for lack of any other choice, and it doesn't look like Dusty was in the mood to specifically turn heel. Uh, so they had to flip somebody and just pick the Road Warriors. Not not a bad idea, though, actually, I think. No, I mean, uh, yeah, especially since um, they've lost Arn and Tully now. They need... They need somebody on the heel side. Um, 
So our hosts are uh, Jim Ross and Bob Coddle. Actually, our, our host for this show is uh, Tony Schiavone with uh, Lex Luger, but the commentators are Jim Ross and uh, Bob Coddle. Um, and then Jason Hervey uh, from The Wonder Years is back. Um, you know, uh, and surprisingly doesn't get any heel heat from the crowd, given his awful judgment call earlier in the year. Um, and our first match is the Fantastics versus Ron Simmons and Eddie Gilbert uh, for the vacant US title in the finals of a tournament. And just as this match is about to start, we get a break um, at 3 minutes and 25 seconds. So we come back and it's Fulton and Simmons to start. Um, Shimon, Simmons shows off his power and size advantage. Um, the crowd is really hot for this. Um, and this is something we'll come back to time and again uh, on this particular card. This Tennessee crowd is wild. That they, they, they love wrestling, these guys. Um, we get a big break breaker from Simmons. Uh, Gorilla Press Slam. Um, we get uh, a shot of Jason Hervey from the Wonder Years now, who we're told is a, a big fan of the Fantastics, which um, I admit I think is a little bit gay um, for, for anyone, for a, kind, a young man to be into the Fantastics at this point. Um, Tommy Rogers comes in, we get a drop kick, uh, the commentators um, get over the speed and the quickness of uh, Rogers. The overhead camera is back. Did you notice that? Um, yeah, yeah, they showed this a lot, uh, especially during this match. What was the what was the show with the overhead camera? It was quite from. It was one of our first. Uh, I think it was the Stark '83, Stark '84 shows. It was yeah. one of the first few ones. Um, so, so it kind of took a four-year hiatus. Um, so yeah, one of the first things Turner did is bring. He brought maybe Turner saw that show and uh, decided that it was time to bring it back. Anyway, Eddie Gilbert comes in with a headlock. Um, we get a uh, he misses an elbow. Uh, this is a pretty fast-paced exchange. Uh, we get an armbar from Rogers, and this match is like a hundred miles an hour at this point. Um, Gilbert does a little strut now. We get a fireman carry takeover by Gilbert, an arm drag by Fulton, um, uh, and again, but that one's reversed into a head scissors by Gilbert. Uh, we get a headlock by Fulton. Inside Cradle gets two. Um, they go nose to nose now, and the Tennessee crowd is really into this match. Uh, Simmons comes in, he has a hammerlock on, and then drives the knee into Fulton's back, um, which looked pretty painful. Um, Fulton escapes, we get some good counter-wrestling in this match. Um, Rogers comes back in, Simmons uh, gets a headlock on, Rogers misses a big elbow from the top. We get a big clothesline from Simmons. Um, Ross mentions at this point that uh, Simmons has had his Flo Florida State title shirt retired, um, which is a big deal. Rogers' uh, long hair, which I've only just noticed, and that uh, is slightly confusing at first because um, that's one of the main ways I tell between Rogers and Fulton is that uh, Rogers is the guy with short hair, Fulton's got the long hair. Um, and he seems to have, like, his hair is slightly lighter than it used to be as well. Um, or maybe when his hair grows out, it's uh, a lighter shade of brown. Anyway, um, uh, Gilbert uh, is in now, and there's a neat little spot where Ray Rogers goes for a snapmare, can't get it, so he rolls up and over him, um, and then gets an arm drag, um, which is uh, I thought was pretty cool. Fulton comes in, we get another arm drag. Things are heating up here, and... Um, we get um, a kind of shoving match between Gilbert and Fulton. 
We get a leg takedown by Gilbert. Simmons comes back in. A headlock. Uh, missed shoulder in the turnbuckle spot here. The Fantastics get back on top. Rogers does a cool move where he jumps over turnbuckle and hits a stomp on the way down, which uh, was really smooth. Um, we get an arm drag, another one. Uh, knee drops into Simmons. Um, and they're targeting uh, Simmons' arm, basically. Those knee drops were on his arm. Um, he works on it a bit more with a hold. 15 minutes have gone now. Um, for me, this felt like only 5 minutes had gone. We get a big uh, elbow from Simmons, um, who tags out. That gets a two count after a neck a, ne uh, a neck breaker. Yes, uh, a vertical suplex gets a two. Uh, a suplex from Rogers now, um, and both guys tag out. So it's Simmons versus Fulton. We get an arm drag, a big leg drop by Fulton, chin, chin lock, gut punch. Uh, Rogers comes in, uh, gets an elbow, and a flashy pin. I'm not sure what the name of that flashy pin is, but it gets a two. Um, Simmons comes back and tags out, um, and uh, the, the action is back and forth here. We get an atomic drop from Gilbert. Um, the crowd is just nut, nuts for this. Uh, we get a back suplex, uh, which gets a two count. Uh, the crowd boos Gilbert at this point. Uh, Simmons comes in with a headbutt, uh, an elbow, an armbar. Uh, Rogers is in trouble, but S Simmons misses uh, in the corner again. Uh, Fulton's back in and he uh, comes off the top. Simmons catches Fulton and power slams him, which is a, a really cool spot. I always like seeing that power slam from the top rope. Um, uh, Simmons tags out, which is pretty smart, and uh, Rogers is back in as well. Uh, Gilbert takes a big uh, bump to the outside, um, and he seems hurt here. He can barely walk, and I'm wondering if this is a hard way. It looks like a legitimate injury to me. Um, maybe we can talk about this in a bit, Chad, this uh, this injury. Um, Rogers attacks uh, the arm now uh, with a knee drop, and um, Gilbert looks like he's in agony. Uh, Ross says that most guys wouldn't get back in, and um, this is what makes me think is legitimate, because Ross keeps on talking about this injury, and um, Gilbert's a heel, so why is he giving him so much sympathy? Anyway, Fulton comes in, and uh, he gets the uh, divorce court. <laughs> um, and uh, several nasty knees on the arm. Rogers comes in, and uh, I thought the Fantastics are pretty sadistic here in the way they target this arm. They're relentless. Uh, the crowd is white, white hot at this point, um, and it's almost like the Fantastics have kind of semi-turned heel midway through this match. Uh, we get an arm drag uh, into an Indian deathlock by Rogers, um, and uh, I have to say that this is one of the coolest heel in peril sequences I've. Uh, I've ever seen, I think, uh, during this match. Um, we get a two count uh, out of nowhere from uh, from Gilbert. Fulton's back in. Uh, we're told that five minutes remain. Um, I think we can hear a doctor or something off mic. Uh, there's somebody talking off mic there, so something's going on. Uh, Rogers uh, is back in with a hammerlock. It's almost like uh, Gilbert has turned face here, and I, I even think the crowd is kind of rooting for him. Um, four minutes remain. Rogers uh, with another nasty knee. Uh, Rogers tumbles into the turnbuckle. Fulton cuts uh, Gilbert off. Um, there's two minutes left. We get a hot shot by Gilbert. An Irish whip by Fulton, which is uh, reversed. Um, 
Gilbert charges and Fulton goes for uh, he basically misses uh, Gilbert does and uh, his shoulder hits the post again and uh, this time it's uh, it's too much for him and the cradle with Fulton gets a three count the Fantastics win the belts and are loudly booed by the crowd and uh, I have to say I'll make no secret of it I absolutely love this match and I actually reckon it's one of the best we've seen Chad what did you think? Um, one thing uh, are we sure that uh, Gilbert and Simmons were not a face team? Um, well, I don't. I, I, I assumed they were they were heels because uh, we had the spot early on where Gilbert did the struts and he got booed, and um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. This could have been a face versus face match, but I was under the impression that uh, Gilbert was a was a heel at the start of this match. Um, because okay. I mean, I know by at least when um, you know, at least when Steamboat makes his debut in January, uh, he teams with Gilbert. Uh, so yeah. Gilbert, if he hadn't turned, I mean, I kind of got the impression this was sort of a face versus face match. Uh, with the Fantastics though taking the more vicious kind of role that yeah. you were talking about. Would, I mean, I, I could have got the wrong end of the stick here, but my, my my impression was that Gilbert started out the match as a as a heel and basically ended it as a face. Or, or maybe okay. the crowd, t the, maybe the crowd turned on the Fantastics midway through the match. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that may be it. Uh, any commentators, please help us out because uh, I mean, me nor Parv have seen the TV surrounding this, no. uh, so we haven't seen Gilbert. I don't think in a while when Simmons, I think he popped up what at the Crockett Cup maybe or some yeah. show around there. The, the, the only th the only thing that I did it did occur to me is that it's a little bit weird for this um, you know Florida State you know all American guy Ron Simmons to be a heel at this point. That was that's yeah, the that's the only thing that makes me think that those guys may be faces at the start of this match. But um, there was something that like I think Ross says you know. Um, that Eddie Gilbert has been a controversial figure or something, which is usually something they say about heel guys. So okay, now yeah, to that I kind of, I, I mean, I took that as sort of a nod of Ross, um, kind of talking about his uh, mid south days, Gilbert's right, okay. mid south days, and how he was kind of, uh, you know, obviously a heel throughout a good bit of that run. Um, so I, I don't know, kind of interesting. But anyway, I mean, that doesn't really take away from the structure of the match because, I mean, honestly, uh, I mean, the Fantastics work over Gilbert. Uh, so kind of by default, he's sort of the baby face in this match. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I, I think uh, I, I, I like the match a good bit. I don't think I liked it as much as you do. No, I, I, I don't think... I I honestly consider I considered maybe even going five stars on this. I really thought it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean I I like this a lot, um, but I I did think uh, first off it's one of the longest matches we've seen. Uh, it clocks in about twenty seven minutes. I thought a couple of the minutes could have been trimmed where we had a couple of restarts. Um, I, I like the opening section, but kind of between that and the uh, when they first started working over Gilbert, 
Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think some of that could have been cut. But, I mean, that's nothing to take away, though. I mean, I do think it is a, a very good match uh, that portrays the Fantastics in an excellent light. Uh, Gilbert and Simmons on the surface level are really kind of weird team. Yeah. Uh, they kind of seem like a weird pairing, but they sort of work uh, with Gilbert's charisma and Simmons's power moves. And then I also do always like when they tease the time limit draw, but we don't get the uh, the time limit draw, and they did that well here too. So definitely a very good match. Just reading the Meltzer, and uh, you're, you're right, by the way. This was face versus face. He says, although okay. both teams were supposed to be faces, the crown wound up booing Fantastics. Um, so so you're right there. And I, I was right. I obviously got the wrong end of the stick with the uh, comments about Gilbert at the start. Um, but surprisingly, he only gives it two and a half stars, uh, which is seems really low. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think this match requires some patience. I don't think this is the kind of match where you can just sort of put on and maybe surf the internet or kind of chill out and you'll get mm. a lot of uh, effect of it because there's a lot of little stuff going on, a lot of cranking on the arm that sort of adds to it when you watch the story as a whole. Uh, and it is a long match, so it does require some patience to watch. Uh, but I do think it's worth it. I mean, I thought it was very good, and obviously you think it's even better than that. Yeah. So, Well, I mean, when you've watched as much uh, All Japan matches as I have, uh, you know, 30 minutes is nothing, man. Right, <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, I mean, maybe I've gone overboard on this match, but I, I just, like, maybe I was just surprised by the viciousness of the Fantastics in this match. It's like they're not a team that you associate with that kind of, like, brutality. Um, and... Was Gilbert really injured here? Because uh, it's another one of these examples of a, uh, a, an injury that seems legitimate, um, but it could I can't really tell. Um, I, I think that's just Gilbert selling. I mean, Gilbert is really one of the masters at kind of getting you to believe uh, certain things uh, throughout his career. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just think that's what he was doing here. It was a very, very effective sell job. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was at least as good as the Jimmy Garvin uh, one that we saw in that mm-hmm. cage match. Um, okay, well, that's uh, that was a surprise for me. I really, uh, I would really went big for. I marked for that match. Um, we get an advert for Starcade '88 now, um, and. Uh, then, then we have Tony Schiavone, who's with Lex Luger. Uh, now, I thought Lex Luger was very awkward um, in basically all of these segments. Um, he says he's looking forward to his rematch with Flair at Starcade, basically, um, which is mainly what all of those, uh, you know, it's mainly the reason that Luger is guest hosting here. Um, any comment on the, on Luger before we go to the second match? I would just agree that he did look uh, pretty awkward in most of these segments. Yeah. So not not very effective, I thought, in selling the uh, Starcade match. So, I couldn't help but notice that they seem to be using guest ring announcers now. Tommy Tommy Miller seems to be gone, and th- there's a black guy. And um, I've just got a question mark here. Is this Montel Williams? <laughs> do, do, do you know who Montel is? 
Uh, no, I don't. Who is that? He's like a kind of talk show host. In oh, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that was him. But uh... Well, I don't know. I, I got the impression that this guy was Montel. But uh, anyway, we, he's a random uh, uh, ring announcer who I don't think we'll ever see be- again or... Uh, I've never certainly never seen him before. Yeah, I've never seen him before. So. Uh, we get the Italian Stallion versus Steve Williams here, um, who's the newest member of the Varsity Club, um, and he's with Kevin Sullivan. Um, just, now, just before this match uh, starts, we get a little interview with Mike Rotunda, and Kevin Sullivan, uh, and Jim Ross. Uh, I can hear the fans chanting for Rick Steiner, who's uh, recently turned babyface. More from her, him later. Uh, Rotunda calls uh, Steiner a moron and says that um, he he says that Houdini was Sullivan's cousin, which is a reference to the fact that uh, at Starcade Sullivan is going to go into the cage on top of the ring again. Um, he says that Steiner graduated from Michigan, which doesn't leave him with much. Um, and uh, I'm wondering, is Syracuse is where uh, Rotunda went? Is that a much better uni than Michigan then? I mean, I wouldn't think there was a distinctive. I mean, to, it's not like Syracuse is an Ivy League school or anything. So, I mean, to me, they'd be pretty, uh, pretty on par with each other academics-wise. So, <laughs> yeah, and actually, I thought during this promo that Rotunda did come across as a kind of like slightly whiny jock asshole here. Like, it kind, you'd kind of affect him in that role. Um, I thought I kind of like Rotunda as a promo. Um, I, I don't know if that's just a quirk I've got, but I think he's underrated in that department. I pre- probably prefer him on the mic than I do in the ring. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I thought this particular promo uh, was not bad, and he does seem kind of like elitist, uh, jockish. So that wasn't terrible. So so anyway, we 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 go back to the ring and it's um Steve Williams versus uh, the Italian Stallion. Um and I've just written in my notes here, are you fucking kidding me? They're showing us jobber matches now. Um but maybe I underrate the Italian Stallion, uh, who who doesn't work this much like a jobber. Um we get a fireman carry uh, takeover by Williams, uh, an arm drag, drop kick by the Stallion. Um Bob Coddle says that the Italian Stallion is a former two-time AAE champ, which is some uh, amateur champion, amateur wrestling uh, championship, I, I guess. Um, we get a wrist lock by Stallion. Uh, Williams grabs uh, his leg, clubbing right hands now, uh, but the Stallion comes back with a with a clothesline. We get a fallaway slam by Williams, uh, body body slam. Uh, then he misses an elbow. Stallion gets uh, a weak two count. We get a wrist lock by Stallion. Um, Williams uses uh, the ropes for leverage during a hold. Uh, and the commentators talk about the uh, influence of Sullivan here. And they, they talk about how it's a shame that this great athlete is, uh, you know, breaking the rules. Um, Stallion takes a tumble to the outside. Uh, Montel fluffs the line here and says that um, there are five minutes left. Um, that that turns out to be wishful thinking. There's actually uh, five minutes have gone and 25 minutes remain. Um, I'm going to be honest, uh, I still think that Steve Williams sucks um, and he's doing nothing in this match to disprove that theory. Um, 
as I say that, he does a, a nice suplex. Uh, he follows it with a knee to the gut. Uh, we get a sleeper. Um, and uh, Jim Ross says that he's tougher than Havoldo Rivera's nose, I tell you. Which is a reference that goes over my head. Um, the stallion uh, uh, seems to be going out to this sleeper. Montel says there's ten minutes have gone. Stallion comes back. Um, no, it's just a hope spot. We get an overhead shot again. I quite like that overhead shot. Uh, the Tennessee fans uh, are excited to be on TV uh, and they kind of wave at the camera. Um, we get a chin lock by Williams and uh, Stallion comes back uh, with a clothesline. He misses an elbow. We get a pretty crappy drop kick from Williams followed by a weird hold on uh, Stallion's leg and I don't know what this hold is called but it's one of those holds where I just can't see how it hurts at all. I just don't understand what that is meant to be doing. And I um, I hate mat work like that. I, d I don't like any hold that I, where I can't see how it hurts. Uh, he gets a half crab on now, uh, which I think is better. Um, the crowd uh, still sort of seems to be quite behind uh, Stallion. Sullivan draws uh, Stallion from the outside. I just want this match to be over. We get a double axe handle by Williams, um, a very slow follow-up. Uh, he's kind of slow and lethargic, Williams. I don't. There's no urgency in him to, to get on and then we'll win this match. Uh, he rolls him back in. Uh, Stallion fights back. We get five punches in the corner by Stallion, uh, which is met by an inverted atomic drop from uh, Williams. Montel tells us that there's 15 minutes left, um, so I don't know. Time seems to be going backwards somehow. We get a body slam by Williams, um, who misses a splash from the top rope. And uh, I can't believe it, the Italian stallion is hulking up now. We get a drop kick and a body slam by him. Uh, Williams catches him though. Uh, we get an Oklahoma and uh, we get an Oklahoma stampede. That's enough for the three. And um, I've just written here, Jesus Christ, wouldn't a squash have done? Chad. Um, I didn't think, <laughs> I mean, I didn't think it was very good. Um, I don't think I hated it as much as you did. Certainly could have uh, been edited down a lot. Um, I think it was about a 17-minute match. That was probably about 10 to 12 minutes, probably too much. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Williams, I thought, was put over well on the commentary. And what he did here, I actually liked a good bit. I thought he used his power moves well. Um, and kind of did pretty good from that uh, strategy standpoint. I thought Stallion brought nothing to the table. This was kind of really a big showcase match for him. And, I mean, somebody like Brad Armstrong, who I'm not a big fan of, I think even somebody like him in this spot would have been a lot more effective than what we got from the Stallion. Uh, so not a not a very good match at all. I don't understand giving Stallion this much airtime on a major, you know, on a pretty major show for for them. Um, you know, this is the first clash after Turner has taken over, and they're putting a Stallion Stallion in a 15-minute match. I mean, it's it's the equivalent, I think, of putting like, I mean, he's probably not SD Jones level, but he's probably like, um, I'm trying to think of a WF equivalent from this time. Um, Who's that guy I mentioned before, Salvadori, Salvatore Belomo? Um, it's yeah. like it's, it, Italian Stallion is a lower card guy, 
So to give that guy a 15-minute match on TV seems bizarre. Um, Melter incidentally gives this minus one star. Mm. So uh, what, so he gave the opener two and a half, you said? Yeah, he gave the opener two and a half, and this one minus, uh, minus one. So okay. He said he can't understand the rationale at all behind that. Yeah, I mean that was it was sort of really perplexing that I mean I mean I love the I mean I like the first match a good bit but it was really long and then to follow it up with this match which was also really long and I mean I don't think they had any plans for uh, the Italian Stallion so uh, yeah. it's kind of weird. So anyway, um, Lex Luger, Tony Schiavone. Uh, and uh, Jason Hervey have a segment now. Jason says uh, that the Fantastics proved uh, to all of Hollywood that they are fantastic. He says. Uh, then we he talks some more about the Wonder Years, and we see some clips from uh, from that show uh, as he's talking. Jason says he can't wait for Starcade. Um, and uh, yet again, I've said that Luger has been bad in these segments, and he just seems to stumble on his words and can't get anything out. Anyway, uh, we go from that. Um, did any comment on Jason Hervey? Um, I mean, at least Hervey, you can tell he's a genuine fan. Yeah. Which I kind of, I can't knock him for that. Yeah. Um, so Magnum TA is here, uh, and he's with the Junkyard Dog, of all people, who I'm, I'm sure a couple of months earlier was working for the WF. Not even, like, maybe even one month earlier. Um now he, as he starts this promo, it's almost incomprehensible. I got kind of what the hell did he say? He said, "I got chucker looking, finger licking, my telephone's gonna ring like a dog." You know, man, I was on my way to North Kakalaka, by the way of South Kakalaka, Virginia, all those places, and my telephone left the room, and it said, "Dog." Everybody needs a bone of Joe and pull on that. What language was he talking here? Did you understand this? Uh, I'm not even going to touch that, but yeah, it was uh, kind of, Junkyard was doing his thing, so uh, sort of a reoccurring theme. Um, he's here to help out his buddy Ivan Koloff uh, against the Russian assassins. You know, man, I was on my way to North Kakalaka, by the way of South Kakalaka, Virginia and all those places, and my telephone left the room. Um, so basically they've signed a match here where it's going to be JYD and Ivan Koloff versus the Russian Assassins. If they win at Starcade, first of all, the Assassins have to unmask. And secondly, Paul Jones has to retire from pro wrestling. And Chad, I'm telling you, I've never, and I mean never, wanted a face team to win so much as I want <laughs> Ivan and JYD to win that match. <laughs> I, I did look up the uh, other assassin. <laughs> Apparently, it was Jack Victory, right? Okay. Uh, under a mask, so that was your assassin, mass assassin number two, or whatever. Well, that's going to be a big crowd reaction. What was it? The Angel of Death and that dude. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, JYD says that Paul Jones ain't nothing but the devil, and I'm the only man that stepped into the devil's door. I kicked the devil's door down and made his natural mama frown J <laughs> and uh, JYD is basically on a kind of John Milton kick here shades of uh, paradise lost and I'm the only man that stepped in the devil though 
kicked the door down and I made his natural mama frown. So Paul Jones, if you want to mess around, and like I got to time and time again, every dog needs a bone at y'all, and I found myself a bone. Um, this is an absolutely mental promo from JYD, uh, but highly entertaining. Um, and I pretty much, I like Magnum as an interviewer. You know, man, I was on my way to North Kakalaka, by the way of South Kakalaka, beginning all those places, and my telephone left the room. Any, uh, any comment on the JYD interview? Uh, it was kind of typical JYD, where uh, that's not really a good thing, so. <laughs> um, we get a big advert for uh, the Starcade show, and it looks like a pretty decent card. And I'm reasonably looking forward to uh, the uh, Io from Koloff JYD versus Russian Assassins match, um, mainly because I want Paul Jones to retire. Speaking of which, um, we get now Ivan Koloff versus Paul Jones. So um, Koloff will. Uh, the stipulation here is that Koloff will wrestle with one hand tied behind his back. Now I have to say I'm loving Ivan as a face, uh, even if we have to see Jones in the ring again. Uh, there's just something I don't know, something weird about this uh, old kind of beaten up uh, guy who's been on the roster for literally over a decade at this point getting this kind of final face run. It's kind of uh, sweet that they're giving it to him. Um, Ivan chokes uh, Jones with his um, uh, one good arm now. Uh, we get a single leg pickup. Big choke from Ivan. Um, and uh, Jones tries to fight back. Jones catches Ivan's leg and uh, knocks him down. Um, we get an elbow drop by Jones and a couple of punches. Um, Jones uses the rope to uh, choke Ivan, uh, the, the rope that's uh, tying uh, Ivan's uh, arm to his back. Um, the action goes outside, uh, we get a big right by Jones, uh, he posts Ivan, and he posts him again. Um, then some weak looking stomps from uh, Paul Jones, very weak looking stomps. Um, uh, we get an elbow drop uh, on the back of Ivan's neck. Um, as Ivan is getting up, Jones uh, trips his good arm from under him, which was, uh, I thought, you know, reasonably neat way of showing that the, um, you know, showing how this stipulation is coming into play. Um, we get a series of right hands from uh, Ivan now. Jones has some sort of weapon. Uh, he nails uh, Ivan in the throat. Ivan fights back. Ron Ross mentions that Ivan has uh, um, held over 20 titles in his career. Uh, Ivan gets a foreign object and nails Jones for three count. Uh, at this point, the Russian assassins hit the ring. We get another beat down on Ivan. JYD hits the ring, and they bail before anything can happen. I thought this is a pretty well-built angle, uh, even if this match is nothing uh, nothing to write home about. Yeah, um, I mean, I kind of agree with that. I don't think the match was anything, but again, I think if you're invested in this angle, you're definitely uh, seeing it build well. Uh, I mean, I, I think just for me, it's kind of unfortunate because I'm not really behind <laughs> Ivan as a face. So it can't, I mean, I'm not, it just doesn't really resonate much for me. Uh, but I can understand that it is being built pretty well, but I mean, I don't know. And I've always sort of hated one arm tied behind their back matches. Uh, this is no exception because I just think you're very limited in what you can do. Yeah, I have to admit there is kind of a bit of the uh, 
kind of, you know, it, my love of the Ivan Face run is slightly ironic, it has to be said, but, uh, you know, that's the type of guy I am. Um, Meltzer does give this match minus three stars, and he says that it's one of, uh, it's probably as bad as any match televised in any country in any year. <laughs> Which uh, seems to be a, you know, it wasn't that bad, was it? I mean, I didn't think it was as bad as the Dusty Kevin Sullivan match from Clash 3, but, uh, I mean, I didn't think it was very good either, so minus three might be a little steep, but, um, I mean, I'm not going too high on the star rating for there, this, so. There's a very sad thing that Meltzer's doing in this particular news letter. He's calling a JYD JFD. For jump, yeah, that was one of the most annoying. I mean, I do think, in many ways, I mean, nobody yeah. I think is going to tout JYD as a, a great worker by any means. Yeah. But I do think a lot of his, uh, kind of his substantialness as a draw really, in some ways, uh, has been hindered by Meltzer's viewpoint as far as the fact that JYD is not even on the uh, Hall of Fame ballot for the Wrestling Observer. And, I mean, you can argue for the first part of the 80s, he was one of the biggest draws in uh, in, in the United States. Yeah. Prob probably in the top two or three, honestly. So it, If you didn't catch that, it stands for Junk Food Dog. Yeah. Which is a kind of a Scott Keith-level joke, really, if you think about it. Um, yeah, I mean, he's pretty charismatic, you know. I mean, the parts of that promo were basically incomprehensible, but... I can see why, you know, he's a, like, he's at least as entertaining as, like, Mr. T is or something like that, I think. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's definitely a character I've never gotten behind. I mean, I'm, before I was a fan, um, I mean, when I was, became a fan, he was way past his peak. Yeah. So, the only thing I really remember him of his actual career is kind of the 90 WCW run, and that's very vaguely. Yeah. Uh so, I mean, he was somebody I've never gotten behind, both re-watching, but, I mean, you can't really argue with the numbers, and he drew in a lot of uh, big houses. Yeah, I do remember, though, a while back, when we were having that big sting argument on PWO, um, that they, I, I, I can't remember, but somebody um, came up with, like, the top ten draws of the 80s, um, uh, and it was because of the way that Meltzer did it or something, it was like, houses over 10,000. And I remember the JYD wasn't on there very, very much. Uh, and I think it was something to do with the, the size of um, the size of the venues that they were playing, because DBRC wasn't on there either. None, none of the mid-size guys were. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, I mean, Matt Farmer has uh, yeah. compiled a list uh, of all the houses over 10,000 that drew over 10,000 and who was the main event. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of the list that that's referencing. Um, but I, I mean, I think there's definitely more to analyzing the numbers than that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously I think it's unfair to compare what you draw in New York city versus what you draw in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, yeah. for comparison. But no, he was definitely, uh, did, you know, I I think a better measure I always think is how much is the guy boosting the gate, 
you know, compared to what it would be without him. Um, and I, I don't think there's any doubt that JYD, um, you know, that Watts built a lot of the business uh, around him in the early 80s there. Um, so much so that, I, you know, as we'll see, he tried to do it again. I, I don't think uh, Ron Simmons would have got that run if it hadn't been for um, the run that uh, Watts had with JYD. Um, would you agree with that? I mean, I, I think he was trying to recreate that success. Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, probably. And I, I, I did, uh, I, this is going to sound cynical, but a, a large part of JYD's following with with the with the black fans in the mid south area, who basically didn't go to the wrestling before JYD was there, right? I mean, I guess they had a Ernie Lad there as well, um, but you know he was big with that section of the audience, which I mean in the early 80s and the late 70s that was a big thing right you know the Italians cheered for uh, Bruno Sammartino and um, uh, Pedro Morales had a, a particular ethnic following so that, that was a thing that bookers used to do at that time um, and uh, well, yeah Watts had some success with them um, anyway let's uh, let's move on from uh, JYD um, we get a uh, uh, back now with Lex Luger and Tony. Luger says that he's admired JYD for a long time and says that there's a lot of tension backstage as Dusty is uh, preparing to face Road Warrior Animal. He says no one understands uh, what the Road Warriors have done here. Um, they tried to break Sting's neck and that's unforgivable because uh, all of the wrestlers have mouths to feed um, and this is a pretty shocking heel turn. Um, that's probably the most, uh, probably the best little bit from Luger this evening. Um, Sting is out now um, to talk to Jim Ross. Uh, he takes his shirt off and then he, um, <laughs> in a spot that made me laugh a little bit, he elbow drops nothing. Um, he just doesn't elbow drop um, in, in the empty ring. He's pretty pumped uh, and he says that the Row Warriors can't paint their faces as good as he can. <laughs> um, so that was entertaining. Any comments on this little uh couple I of wasn't crazy about that promo <laughs> from Sting, but uh I don't think Sting's ever been a really good promo, so Yeah, I I've never really quite understood Sting's character. Like, is he just excite an excitable guy or like what's his deal? I mean I don't know if he's kinda like a wild man or I mean it, I don't think he kinda has a set sorta you know, like like an occupational, you know, that type of character. But uh, I mean, I mean, I, I definitely think he has a great charisma and look, and when he's bouncing around and stuff, it's very excitable. But uh, just when he starts talking on the microphone, most of the time he sort of loses me. So yeah. that's kind of annoying. What do you think what of the elbow drop to the empty ring? Uh, yeah, that was a little ridiculous. That was sort of Flair 1999-esque, stripping down to his boxers and dropping the elbow on nothing. So that was pretty ridiculous. Yeah, that, that's, reminded, that's what it reminded me of as well. So uh, Rick Steiner is with Magnum TA um, as Animal waits in the ring for Dusty. Um, Magnum says that Steiner has been using the belly-to-belly -belly suplex. Uh, and Steiner thinks he's talking about breakfast. <laughs> Magnum says he uh, that um, he used to use that move. And Steiner says that uh, he didn't know about that, and that Alex taught him the move. Alex, if you don't know, is a little face painted on his left hand. 
Now, of all the mental uh, disability gimmicks, uh, Chad, I think Rick Steiner's is possibly my favourite in that it's the only one I can really tolerate. Um, I never liked Eugene. I never liked George Animal Steel. And uh, as you may know, I dislike all of the Wildman gimmicks like Akka and Sifa and uh, Afra and Sika and Kamala and all those guys. What's your take on uh, on on this version of Rick Steiner? Um, I, as you'll probably, I'm sure we'll get to it. I I pretty much hate Rick Steiner in a lot of ways. <laughs> I sort of his kind of goofy gimmick. It's another thing I've never been able to get behind. Um, and so I mean, obviously the way they presented him kind of also gave credence to what. Rotundo was saying earlier too. I mean, because obviously uh, we know Steiner did go to Michigan, and he's talking to a person that's a face on his hand. So, so I mean, I'm not saying that I love it. I'm just saying that out of all the kind of mental deficiency gimmicks that have been, and I'm trying to think of some more now. Evad Sullivan, for example. Yeah, see, I like Evad better. <laughs> I will, I will be pro Evad over. A lot of Steiner stuff. I mean, I think Steiner may have been the best in kind of being able to work around it. Uh, but there's just a lot of matches that I know of. I know there's a match uh, of his in Japan where he's constantly... It's uh, January 4th, 1994. It's a Dome Show match. And it's the uh, Steiner Brothers versus Kenji Muto and Hase, Hiroshi Hase. And a lot of people really like that match, and I thought it was fine, but like throughout the match, Steiner is barking like a dog, um, just and doing all these like dog motions and kind of mannerisms. And this match is in the Tokyo Dome, so you have kind of uh, the Tokyo Dome's pretty traditionally quiet anyway for a lot of matches with the heat. And, uh, you know, all you hear is him constantly barking like a dog to no reaction and just these blank stares from all these Japanese fans. <laughs> so uh, that that match really kind of soured me. All right. Well, lots more Rex Steiner to come up. So uh, yeah, I, I, I hope we don't find a sequence that annoying in going through these WCW shows. But I know there's certain matches that I've watched of him before where he's done a lot of stuff that's kind of annoyed me. Yeah, well, there are a couple of matches coming up in the early 90s where I'm, like, um, because of their stiffness and, frankly, unprofessionalism, I used to really like those matches. I'll be interested to see what I make of them now, but I'm uh, even more interested to see what you make of them. I think you know which matches I have in mind there. Right, right. Um, anyway, uh, we have now Dusty Rhodes versus uh, Road Warrior Animal. Dusty's wearing an eye patch on which he's painted a kind of... Uh, like Row Warriors type uh, thing. Looks pretty silly. Um, we start out with a clothesline by Dusty. He misses an elbow and then he eats one. Um, now, I, I don't think I've ever seen the Row Warriors work heel before. Um, so this was a like a weird scenario for me to see these guys work as heels. Um, um, Animal misses a charge in the corner. Um, his leg gets uh, wrapped around uh, the post. Uh, we get a figure four uh, attempt, but Ellering interferes. Uh, and this is the most we've seen Paul Ellering ever do, I think. Um, Animal uh, goes after the injured eye, 
we get a single leg pickup. Hawk comes out and attacks Rhodes now. We get double teaming from the Row Warriors. Sting is out. The crowd is electric for, for this. Dusty has a chair um, and attacks Hawk. The Row Warriors are um, kind of bail. Uh, the crowd is uh, really good. Jim Ross is almost hoarse. He's been shouting so much. And um, the referee's decision is that Dusty Rhodes has been disqualified for using a chair. Didn't he see Hawk dive in the ring? <laughs> you would think so, but uh, apparently not. Uh, yeah, any thoughts about that brief match? Um, I mean, I thought. Uh, I mean, I thought. I actually thought. I mean, as anybody has listened to these shows the past few months knows, I've been really down on Dusty. I thought this was kind of a good, uh, good segment. Didn't overstay its welcome. I kind of built some heat for the Starcade match, so I thought it was fine. Um, you know, effective and short. Yeah. Uh, Malta says that the crowd actually cheers Dusty, which is a surprise. Um, I thought this crowd was very well behaved, actually. Uh, you know, they kind of did what they were meant to do, apart from booing the Fantastics at the uh, in the end of the first match. They, this is one of the best crowds I can remember hearing on a show. Um, maybe they should go to Tennessee more often. Yeah, I mean, I think Tennessee and... Uh, Georgia crowds typically they will follow uh, your general face hill structures. Uh, even North Carolina crowds to a certain extent um, around this time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there was kind of the the kind of vocal minority in Greensboro that would surround ringside that would sort of uh, change the tide a little bit, but. In, in both Tennessee and Georgia, we haven't seen really kind of reactions that would go against what the uh, what the bookers and the promotion wanted the reaction to be. Because, I mean, the Fantastics were presented as the uh, heel, so... Yeah. They did, they, they did kind of... They worked that much heel, looking back on it. Right. Um, so, Lex Luger and uh, Tony Schiavone uh back... That Luger kind of mumbles and stumbles some more stuff. Um, it's like he just can't get his words out, and he's just—it's uh, almost like he. Uh, I've noticed this when I listen to a shoot interview with him. He does seem to have some sort of speech impediment or something at times, Lex Luger. Um, and uh, it's time for our main event: the Midnight Express, Stan Lane and beautiful Bobby Eaton as faces, uh, with Jim Cornette as a face, uh, versus Ric Flair world champion, and Barry Windham, US champion, and this is of course uh, the horseman post Arnon Tully. Um, I thought this is quite exciting going into this, it's a type of match, uh, you know, it's almost like a dream match. Would have been nice to see Arnon Tully against the Midnight's obviously, but this uh, prospect is almost as good I think. Um, Flair and Windham come out uh, with, uh, with Dylan. Um, the crowd uh, are definitely supporting the Midnight Express here, and I'm surprised by just how over the Midnights are with the crowd. Um, Eaton uh, slaps uh, Flair and Wyndham uh, to wild cheers. Uh, they tie up. Uh, we get chops from Flair. Eaton comes back. Uh, we get a back body drop. A Flair flip, uh, and then he takes a fist from Lane on the apron. Karate kick from Lane, uh, and again, Flair catches his leg, but he manages to get the other leg over to kick Flair on the back of the head. Wyndham comes in, uh, um, then we get some rights into Lane's head. 
uh, but Wyndham misses a big elbow from the top rope. Um, we get a drop kick from Lane, a karate kick. Eaton nails Wyndham outside. Eaton comes back in. Um, we get some scoop slams from Eaton on Flair and Wyndham. Uh, they go for a double clothesline, but Eaton gets both of them. JJ Dillon seems to be, uh, um, teach, you know, he seems to be telling Barry Wyndham off basically outside the ring. So I wonder what he was telling him. Um, Flair and Lane uh, tie up now. Lane gets the better of it and gets uh, the figure four on. Eaton applies the figure four too, uh, as Cornette uh, shouts at Dillon. Ross says that he's um, done a lot of growing up on the, in the past couple of uh, weeks as Jim Cornette, uh, which is interesting. Flair begs off now. Uh, I think it's really weird to see the Midnight uh, Express booked as strongly and dominantly as this. Um, you know, we used to see them, see them as reasonably cowardly heels, and they've been all over Flair and Wyndham uh, so far. Flair has control now. We get some big chops in Eaton, but Eaton comes back with... Uh, some offence of his own and tags Lane in, um, takes an elbow, uh, and then we get a little insert interview with Paulie Dangerously. So I think somebody at Turner has said, have you ever seen that WF show where they have insert interviews and interviews throughout the show? Maybe we should do that. Uh, they're only three years too late with it, but still, um, we do get it. Um, Dangerously's got his big phone, big white phone, and a pair of shades. And um, he says that he shared from Ted Turner himself, um, uh, who said not to let the real Midnight Express into the building. That's uh, Dennis Condry and Randy Rose. But that's the match that's going to happen at Starcade. So we're going to get a Midnight Express versus the original Midnight Express at, uh, at Starcade, which should be interesting. Eaton is on top of Flair uh, for the next few minutes. Uh, we get another Flair flip. Um, double back body rot by the Midnights, which gets a two count, another two count, uh, Wyndham breaks it by hitting uh, Eaton on the back of the head, um, Wyndham comes in with an averted atomic drop, we get a big standing suplex, a power slam, Flair comes in with a knee drop, slaps him in the face uh, a few times disrespectfully, uh, Eaton comes in, um, the crowd thunderously uh, stomps their feet. Um, the action goes to the outside with the heels on top. Uh, we get a lariat by Wyndham, which gets a one count. A side suplex by Wyndham, a sleeper, um, and uh, Eaton arm drags himself out of the sleeper. Flair comes in, big chops uh, back and forth now. Wyndham and Lane are both in now. Lane is on fire, body drops and kicks all round. We get a nice double team high and low spot from the Midnight Express, which I thought was quite cool. Alabama Jam on Wyndham. Um, Dylan is on the apron. Uh, he throws his uh, shoe down. Cornette grabs Dylan, but Flair has the shoe. He nails Eaton with it, and uh, he puts Wyndham, who's basically knocked out from the Alabama Jam, on top for the three count and a hollow victory for the Horseman. Now, I thought this was a good match, but not a great match. What did you think? Um, I, I think I got it more towards uh, bordering on the great end of the spectrum. I, I really like this a lot. Um, and in many ways, it's kind of the type of match where uh, you just don't see this type of match now. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of impossible uh, in many ways for it to become uh, this type of match where you have two single stars 
facing a tag team kind of in a dream match atmosphere. Uh, and you're kind of uncertain on who's going to win and who's going to dominate the tag division, uh, which, quite frankly, in the WWE current day, the tag division's pretty good. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really one of the best tag divisions they probably had in a little while, at least. Uh, but even still, it wouldn't have the same kind of effect as this match did. I thought Raw's commentary was very good. Uh, in building this match up, I thought he did a fabulous job, and I loved all the spots early. Of uh, I've always sort of bought into the theory that if you have these two big single stars and a big uh, tag team, if they're in a tag match initially, the tag team's gonna have a pretty good advantage because they're used to the tag formula and can uh, utilize the strengths of a tag formula. Um, and I thought this match did a really good job in portraying that. Uh, the finish, while kind of cheap, uh, did put heat on the horseman, and I thought it was effective uh, of uh, use of JJ. Um, I, I just really liked this match and all the work in it. I mean, I don't think it was a, a blow-away type match, uh, but for a TV special um, main event, I thought it was very, very good. So... <laughs> I guess my problem with the match was um, was that it was just too weird for me to see um, the Midnight's wrestlers uh, as faces, and I'm not really buying Eaton as a this kind of Superman that he was in this match. You know, he was kind of like e- Eaton in this match worked it as if he was like one of the Row Warriors or something. Um, at, at you know when he was on offense, so like when you have the spot where Flair and Wyndham miss the double clothesline and then he comes back with it, it was just really weird for me to see. Uh, Eaton do that against two guys as you know, um, as big name I guess as uh, Flair and Wyndham. Um, you know I, I agree with most of the stuff that you said, and I I did love the story of you know the superior tag team has got the advantage even though it's against the two best singles wrestlers in the company, which was the story they were telling here. Um, but yeah, I think for that reason I liked it less than you did, uh, and also less than Meltzer did, who gave it four stars. Um, and uh, just a little bit of interest here. He mentions that this whole show was um, booked by Jim Crockett, who is uh, officially now the booker. Dusty is no longer booking this. Did you know that? Uh, I didn't know. Uh, I, I'm kind of interested when it transitions. I actually thought it was kind of a pretty clear transition from uh, from Crockett to when Flair started kind of mainly run, I mean, from Dusty to when Flair started running the book. So I guess Crockett kind of had a little time where he oversaw it. I thought this show was booked well than what we've seen in a lot of ways uh, so far. I mean, you had a conclusive finish in the first match. Uh, the main event, I think you could consider it kind of a cheap kind of cop-out finish, but... uh one thing, too, uh, Cornette's promo at the end was a oh, great yeah. kind of fired-up so, babyface promo. So, so let, let me get on to this. Uh, we still haven't finished the show yet. We get the babyface promo from Cornette now, and it's a really good one. He puts everyone over, even the heels, um, and says they went toe-to-toe up with the world champion and the U.S. champion. He says Flair had to stoop to prevent himself from being embarrassed. He says the Midnight's proved... Um, uh, you know, how good they were, basically. He says that they've already fixed two of the horsemen, 
uh, there's only two left Wyndham and Flair this is and for me this was like a kind of bizarro world where Jim Cornette is a face and he says words like brother a lot and the fans cheer him um, it's really this whole card actually is kind of like a bizarro world card you know the Rogue Warriors are heels the Midnights of Jim Cornette are faces it's like the world's gone topsy-turvy for a while <laughs> but yeah, yeah you definitely can see some transition happening but yeah it was a good promo and uh, you know I don't think there were too many babyface Jim Cornette promos, unless he uh, was he a face in Smoky Mountain for any amount of time. Or yeah, he was for some periods, and then he would turn heel pretty quickly afterwards. So yeah, it was It was it was genuinely surprising to see that. And um, yeah, but Bob Coddle and Jr. basically talk a bit as we go out, and we get back to uh, Lex and Tony at the end, who say very little of note between them in about five minutes um so yeah i didn't actually know that jim crockett did any booking at all i thought he was a, always a hands-off guy who never really got involved with the kind of finer details but um according to Meltzer, he's 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 involved in this and i as a car that's basically hyping starcade i thought this was fantastic yeah i mean it hyped starcade um i mean you have a free tv show that hyped your page show uh, but the show itself didn't feel like just, uh, you know, lip service to another show you have to pay to watch. I mean, I think if you were just an isolated viewer that was flipping through the channels um, and you came across this, it could have held your attention as a standalone show and uh, built your interest for Starcade. Yeah, the, the, the only slightly awkward thing that remains, I think, is that Flair and Wyndham are still clearly two of the four horsemen here and the other two were basically gone um, so I'd have thought in the time since Arn and Tully have left they would have thought about something else to do with them already you know if, if that was WF they would have sorted this out by now but it's still kind of like they're still somehow in that stable and there's, right. only, there's only two of them um, so that, that was a, a slight criticism of the booking um, so yeah, uh, the, the only other thing to mention is that Meltzer is pumped for uh, Ricky Steamboat's arrival, and he has all sorts of ideas for what could happen um, in the next couple of months. Um, match of the night? Uh, my match of the night, I'm going to go with the main event. Um, I have an edge in the opening tag. Um, I'm really not much to add with what I said. I just thought it was very good. And I, I do think that it's elevated slightly uh, by what I was talking about with the novelty factor, mm -hmm. uh, where this just really does seem like a match you will not see uh, in American wrestling currently. So, so, unsurprisingly, I've gone with the Fantastics versus Gilbert and Simmons. Um, and I, I guess, uh, in a way, it's the novelty of seeing the Fantastics work as vicious heels versus the novelty of seeing the Midnight's workers kind of pretty over-dominant faces, right? Um, and, well, I guess the, my tastes swing towards the former. But I also just thought it was a great um, selling job by Gilbert, and I don't know, I like the whole story of that match, even though it, it was a little long. Um, I'm going with Fantastic versus Gilbert and, and uh, Simmons. So, MVP. 
Uh, my MVP, I think, for the uh, for the first time, I'm going to go with Bobby Eaton. Uh, for me personally, um, I, th- I thought he was very good in that main event tag match. Uh, timed his spots well. Uh, had some good kind of baby face fire. Uh, and and you know, even though it is kind of a jarring transition from when we last saw him, it's kind of vicious heels to. Uh, to these, you know, baby faces. I thought they did it really seamlessly. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and um, I, I thought it was very believable. Yeah. Oh, okay, well, I went for Bobby Eaton last time, so I can't go for him. Not last time. I went for him on the Great American Bash show. Yeah. Um, and I will say about him, he that Alabama Jam is amazing. That was a really good. Uh, he nailed it on this particular show. Yeah, he gets great air on that yeah. um, most of the time, and that that's a move that looks like it hurts. Definitely. Uh, my MVP, unsurprisingly, do you want to have a guess? Uh, I'm gonna guess Eddie Gilbert. Actually, it wasn't. I've gone. For, oh, okay. I've gone for Tommy Rogers. Oh. Okay. Um, part partly because I don't think. Um, I think he's an underappreciated worker um, uh-huh. in many ways who doesn't really get um, talked about that much. Uh, I actually think that he's really good, Tommy. Tommy like he's th- does everything smoothly, and there were lots of n- very neat little spots and uh, counter holds, and uh, you know, lots of little things he did in that match that I thought was really. I actually thought that Fulton had a great match as well. Um, uh, I I probably would say that Fulton is better than Robert Gibson. Is is that really controversial thing to think? Mm, I mean, I, I I think I mean I think maybe a few years ago that might have been, but I mean I think now it would be kind of half and half. Maybe I mean I, I I think I like Fulton a little bit better, uh, but I mean I I I guess. Kind of to me, with between the Fantastics and the Rock and Roll Express, I like Fulton a little better than Gibson. Uh, but while I do really like Tommy Rogers, I still like Ricky Morton a little bit better than him. Yeah. Uh, so that kind of evens out, I guess. Well, I mean, if you were to rank them, the four of them as workers, I don't think there's any question that Morton is top. But it, for me, it'd go two Rogers, three Fulton, and four Gibson. And the gap between Fulton and Gibson is quite big. But also probably the gap between Morton and Rogers is quite big as well. I mean, Morton's probably an all-time worker. Um, Rogers isn't on that level, but he's still really good for what he does. Um, now, Billy Graham Award. My uh, Billy Graham winner um, on this show is going to be the Italian Stallion. Um, and that, again, is... Uh, what we talked about before. He was really given kind of a spotlight and just did nothing with it, so. <laughs> now, this is going to sound harsh, okay? I was tempted to say Lex Luger um, because he was just awful in uh, all of those segments, but my Billy Graham Award winner for at least the third time, to my knowledge, is Steve Williams again. <laughs> um, and that's because... Um, between the two of them, if you if you were to say Steve Williams versus the Italian Stallion, the onus is on Steve Williams to carry that match, right? He's the guy who's meant to be the worker there. He's the guy who can wrestle. 
he's the guy who is meant to have talent. So he should be dragging a better match out of Italian Stallion than what he did. Um, and I, th I honestly think that he's sloppy on a lot of spots. Like there's a terrible drop kick from him in that match. There's a lot of time where he um, does a move and then he just walks, a, like he kind of looks around the ring and doesn't follow up. Um, I don't know. I, I'm really not digging Steve Williams in 1988. So just to underline the point, I picked him again. So, <laughs> so there we are. Yeah, this was a a very good show though, and a vast improvement. Um, I mean, I would still say this was not as good as Clash One, uh, but definitely the second best Clash show. No, I I I I'm tempted to say that this is probably it may even be the second best show of the year that I can think of. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's competing with the Great American Bash. Um, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, well, and you don't like the opening tag. To me, the opening tag would be what would maybe tip it in the Great American Bash's favor because that would be three uh, good matches versus two good matches here. Mm -hmm. um, I, but, uh, I but yeah, I mean, I think the finishes in this show were better for sure. Yeah, well, get rid of Dusty and you get better finishes immediately. Um, I I also I also think though that my love of the opener here. I mean, for me, it's a borderline five star match. I I could be overreacting. I don't know. I probably am, but um, yeah, that's what I thought. So, just before we sign out here, uh, Chad, do you want to have a look at uh, Melter's ideas to improve the product? Let's hear them. Uh, let me let me have a look. I, I have to find where this was now. Um, give me a second. I need to. Where did he say this? Um, here we are. Um, it was the September twenty sixth uh, newsletter. Let me just bring it up. <coughs> right. So, I'm, I'm not going to read all this out in full. I'll, I'll just uh, give you the general gist here. We've got a number of topics and suggestions to make uh, the promotion better. First of all, employee relations. Uh, he says, pro wrestling is physically uh, demanding entertainment. Because of this, it's simply unfair that wrestlers don't get company-provided medical insurance. So, there, there's the whole, you know, give them uh, cab fares or rent-a-cars to get to arenas. Uh, give them a weekly salary, um, regardless of the gates, um, balloon con payment contracts are a farce, etc., etc. And um, I think a lot of that stuff that he's talking about did actually, in the long run, happen. It may have been a fair bit later than this, but um, it's definitely, definitely a point. He he says, for example, if a star like Ric Flair wants to stay at the Hemsley Palace. Uh, he should be allowed to, provided he makes up the difference in room rates. Um, and I mean, that, that's one of the reasons why Flair was broke, right? Because well, yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, knowing Flair's uh, spending habits, I don't know if we should be uh, suggesting him staying <laughs> at the Hilton or Ritz Carlton every night. But, but I, I think the point is that he did himself, right? Like he just paid. He paid out of his own pocket. Well, um, yeah, I mean, but they have to pay their expenses now, too. So, I mean, I, I don't give 
player a pass on that because everybody else is able to stay at the Hampton Inn or whatever. He can certainly, you know, swallow his pride and do that. Hey, you know, one guy who really got all those perks was uh, was was my favorite, uh, Teddy Biasi. You know, he uh, just to make the uh, gimmick uh, kind of watertight. I, I I think at least for 88 and maybe most of 89 as well. He was staying in like top places on his own. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was pretty genius. And I mean, another thing. Um, I mean, I don't know if Crockett did this. Uh, uh, I don't even know how much they were really like flying to shows. But one thing I always liked was that the uh, the WWF champion would fly first class. Yeah, I thought that was kind of just a small perk, but uh, kind of stuff like that does go a long way. So another thing on Meltzer's list here, he says, uh, television, a wrestling television show shouldn't be a self-contained episode, but rather a piece in a soap opera-like puzzle. There should be a reason to make you watch each week, and when the show ends, it should end with a teaser that makes you anticipate the next episode. The current NWA format shows virtually no imagination or planning for the future. Um, now, having just watched uh, Clash 4, I can't really agree with that. Because that did everything to make you want to watch next week, didn't it? Um, but I, we don't, we, we haven't really been watching the TV week in week out, so it's difficult to know what to make of what he's talking about here. Right. Yeah, that one's kind of tough for us to judge. But I mean, certainly in the long run, again, I think the general wrestling trend is that um, they did listen to whether they listened to Meltzer or not. I don't know, but this did end up happening, didn't it? Um, I or did it Raw was that a self-contained episode each week, or did it make you want to watch next week? Kind of. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I think, I mean, I think in some ways that kind of ebbs and flows with the peaks and valleys of the promotion. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think a lot of ways the hotness or coldness of a product is. Um, you know, iterated, reiterated by their television and how it's presented. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's kind of tough to gauge because, I mean, 89 is a, uh, you know, obviously a great in-ring year for Crockett and NWA, but, uh, but, you know, I mean, I don't think they were drawing huge ratings or really big houses. So, Next thing on his list is merchandising. He says, I don't know who thought up the Four Horsemen vitamin idea, but there should be enough checks and balances to stop obvious bombs from making their way to the public. Titan names its wrestling at children and merchandises for children. It's harder to merchandise for adults, and the NWA's prime audience is the male 18 to 30 demographic group. How about Alex Luger and Sting home workout video? Yeah, so, so I'm just uh, I'm just imagining what that home video would work, <laughs> home video would uh, look like. How about a video tracing Ric Flair's career over the past ten years? A two-hour video of legendary NWA matches, posters, T-shirts, and photos should be more readily available to those who don't attend the house shows, and the wrestlers should virtually always be wearing or carrying their gimmick merchandise when they do an interview uh, to get the gimmick over. A, prof- a professional magazine written intelligent written intelligently, brackets, by me, Dave Meltzer, should be a moneymaker once it gets established. 
Pulling the plug after an issue or two shows no commitment and hurts the, hurts the company in the long run. So, I mean, again, if you think about what WWE have done, this has actually happened, hasn't it, really? That, that's how WWE markets to its prime audience now, isn't it? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, and I think definitely around this time, the WWF had sort of a stranglehold uh, from figures to kind of marketing towards the kids. I mean, I, I don't really even think WCW in the merchandising respect ever figured it out no. until uh, probably the NWO era, so... Yeah, that was certainly a kind of this will be a persisting problem for them for the next eight years. Yeah, and, and maybe if if you are listening to this, uh, you know, on the comments, maybe a bit of fun might be. You know, Meltzer came up with the Lex Luger and Sting home workout video. Or what other kind of merchandising ideas do you think uh, Crockett could have used at this time? Um, I'll let you get your thinking caps on for that. I mean, I think the Flair documentary is interesting, but. Uh, that again seems really suited towards more uh, hardcore wrestling fans. So I don't know, you know, I mean that's something I'd like to watch, but I don't know how many casual fans would pick up a Ric Flair documentary. Yeah, well, maybe uh, something like uh, you know a Russian cooking video with uh, Ivan Koloff. I, I I don't know. I I don't know what. Uh, I'd have to think about it a bit more. Maybe maybe for the next show I'll, I'll come armed with some ideas. Um, next thing is he, is he talks about the booking. He says anyone can sit back and write a dozen new scenarios, some of which work and some of which won't work. Until they are t tried, nobody knows for sure. Titan has bombs too. Nobody comes close to 100% on ang angles. The head booker probably shouldn't wrestle because we've seen the danger that causes. They should, however, be very receptive to all ideas from the wrestlers, and wrestlers should be encouraged to put... Um, to help put together their own programs, provided these programs are going in the same general direction as the booker has planned. Don't fight the fans. If the fans like someone, even though you encourage the fans not to, then take advantage of the charisma of the wrestler. If a wrestler is getting over without a push, case in point Sting, don't hold them back simply because another guy who isn't getting over as well was in your original plans. Recognize when an act is stale and do something about it. Uh, everyone knows the Road Warriors are stale, and it isn't. In isn't entirely Rhodes' fault, but it is his fault to allow them to get as stale as they have gotten. Uh, blah blah blah. So we, we know that the uh, uh, Road Warriors turn, um, and uh, he talks a lot there. I, I don't know about giving guys uh, more. Like we we did see what guys putting input into their own characters uh, would lead to later on in WCW. So I'm not entirely sure that's a great idea. Um, but, I mean, is he saying that Dusty was just closed to input from anybody else? I don't know. Yeah, and, you know, obviously we've seen a booking change from this uh, Observer when this was printed, so they're already stepping in the right direction in that regard. Yeah. He, he also talks about here, uh, um, encourage fans to think. If they spend any time of time thinking about the product, it becomes easy to hook them, and they become the most consistent and loyal customers. That's an interesting direction to take wrestling, to encourage fans to think. That seems to be uh, counterintuitive to me. Yeah, I don't uh, know about that either. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I don't. when was the last time a, 
when the WWF, who were really successful at this point, encouraged their fans to really think about what was happening. If you, if you really spend any time thinking at all about Hogan, you should hate him, right? More than likely, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff about too many uh, ref bumps and all of the rest of it. Um, I think that's... Uh, is that is that the last of uh, what we get from him? That's it. That, so that was uh, his ideas on how to... So I think some of the things that he was talking about there was actually prophetic. They were actually things that ended up happening. Um, other things I'm not too sure about. Anyway, we go from here to Starcade 88, and it's a card I'm looking forward to. Yeah, um, I, it's one of the shows I've seen a good bit, and uh, I've always liked it pretty well. Um, so I'm interested to see if it holds up. Yeah, and uh, bizarrely, one of the matches I'm looking forward to the most is the uh, Ivan Koloff uh, JYD tag match. <laughs> um, just because I've got my fingers crossed that it's the last we'll ever see of Paul Jones. I could be wrong. <laughs> we'll see. Um, Good luck. <laughs> and uh, I should mention we have uh, uh, some special guests on for that show, and uh, I'm looking forward to that too. So until next time, Chad. All right, see you, Paul. Bye. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody.